And welcome back to the Dynamic Nonprofits Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Saunders. And today we are thrilled to welcome back to the show a very good friend of the podcast, Mike Dirksen, who is founder of the Build Good Agency, as well as the host of the Build Good Podcast and the new Donor Growth Podcast, both of which we'll talk about here in a little bit. Um, but we're thrilled to welcome Mike back onto the show for his, uh, his great perspective um, about what to talk how to fundraise when the world is a mess. And let's face it, the world is a mess right now on a number of different levels. And sometimes um, it's not entirely clear if it's right to fundraise or how to fundraise. Should we be talking about events in the world? Should we be pretending that these things are not existing? Do we not want to distract the donor with negative news? These are the types of conversations that nonprofit leaders uh, across the world are having right now. And Mike has always um, been a, a really reliable perspective for me. Um, he came on during the pandemic to talk about some things to talk about with your donors. And that's why I'm thrilled to welcome him back right now to talk about how to engage with uh, nonprofits, how to engage with donors uh, during a, a very complicated time in the world. And with that, uh, I'm going to welcome Mike onto the show. Mike, uh, welcome back to the Dynamic Nonprofits podcast. And Thanks so much for taking time to join us again. Dan, thanks for having me back. Uh, last time we talked was at the sort of at the beginning of COVID. And we're we're back again talking about how, how to fundraise during uncertain times. Now, the good news is last time COVID sort of changed the world overnight. And what we're experiencing now, which is heading toward a, a possible recession, certainly dealing with a lot of inflation and uncertainty. Uh, this is more of a gradual, slower change. Um, and nonprofits have a much better chance to do something today that will have uh, a positive impact tomorrow. So if people are listening to the show, I really hope that what you take out of this is that there's a lot that you can do. Like you're in the driver's seat for a lot of these decisions. And if you start implementing and planning and strategizing today, there's a very good chance that, that, that the next year isn't going to be as bad as you might think it is. Yeah, that's something that I keep coming back to is that um, as complicated as things are with inflation, which, um, you know, the thing is, is that there are very few fundraisers in the industry that were around during the last inflationary crisis. So we are kind of building the plane as we go for many of us. And um, e even though um, many organizations maybe are starting to feel the pinch, uh, this is a long tail event. And that's one thing I keep coming back to is that it's not too late to start that conversation. You're not behind yeah. the eight ball yet, but it's, it is important to be proactive about these things. And, and we're really eager to hear about the advice that you're sharing with your clients and in your industry about um, how to fundraise during such a difficult and complicated time. Um, but last time we had you on the show, um, we didn't have a chance to get into your fundraising story. And that's something that um, I've always found to be really fascinating and inspiring about what brought you into this business and where you are today. So would you mind um, catching everyone who isn't familiar with you up to speed on how you got into this great industry and um, worked your way up to starting the Build Good Agency? Sure. Yeah. I, I was born in South America. I was born in Paraguay. My dad was a social entrepreneur. He worked with farmers to uh, sort of small scale farmers to to pool their products together and bring it to market. 
Um, so very much like finding business solutions to poverty. Uh, my mom was a nurse. Together, they ended up um, starting in, uh, an orphanage for, um, for, for orphan children. One night, um, as a family, we had moved to the capital city, and we were driving around that night just trying to get to know the neighborhood, came upon a road. And at first, um, it's not unusual in South America to have like cattle on the road. And so at first, my dad was like, oh, man, I think you know, I think there's a bunch of cattle like sleeping here for the night. And it turns out it was just like hundreds of kids um, who sort of slept on on this back road for the night. So they started an orphanage. So I grew up in I grew up with parents who were both in that field very much, not on the fundraising side, but on the program side. And then um, they would have to raise funds for these projects. And so on the weekends, they'd go to churches and different people and sort of present about the work. So I kind of grew up in that environment. And my parents always did a very good job teaching me that you can serve a market of needs and you don't have to serve a market of wants. Right. So you can still be entrepreneurial and, and, and serve a market of needs um, because there are a lot of needs in the world and they need solutions, just like just like the wants of people need solutions. So um, I, I, I that's sort of where I where I, you know, my, my parents were sort of the OG builders of good. I didn't think that I would necessarily go into that sector, to be honest. But when I went to university and I studied communications and marketing and I decided that I needed a break, I went to Europe, ended up working for a nonprofit there called Global Aid Network. As a, as a gift and kind sort of coordinator, driving all over the country, picking up different um, hospital beds and, and equipment that hospitals and other places no longer needed, putting in containers, shipping them to the Middle East and other parts. And that's that's kind of where I got the, the bug for, um, for the nonprofit sector. And then I, I worked at a few other shops there, worked for a larger shop, went to a very tiny shop, ended up growing that um, multiple fold, and then applied all of those learnings to start Build Good. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank you for sharing your story. Um, you know, one of the things that I, I, I honestly, I admire about you, Mike, is that you are very tactical and strategic, and you don't mind breaking things down into, into numbers and being very thoughtful in just the overall approach to fundraising, but you still come at it with um, a, a ton of empathy and enthusiasm for philanthropy. And I think sometimes um, there's a, a perception that you kind of have to choose one or the other, that it's either cold-hearted tactics or right. it's entirely built on empathy and enthusiasm for helping others. How, how is there something from your background or, or how do you how have you been so successful at kind of bridging the gaps at clearly caring so much about causes that you're passionate about, but also um, maintaining a very strategic and tactical approach to um, improving and optimizing and modernizing fundraising? Yeah, I, I think uh, I'm going to try to answer this in, a <laughs> in, in, in sort of a shorter way, but I, I think it probably comes down to the fact that that's just kind of human. So humans do first and foremost operate out of emotion and and empathy or, or anger or all of these different big feelings that we have. But at the same time, um, we then rationalize those choices, right? And we now know that by a lot of by a lot of research that has been done. Um, I'm certainly um, not. It, not at all uh, versed in behavioral science or any of that, but I listen to a lot of smart people who are. And, and so you kind of need both of those. You need the, the left brain and the right brain. And if you can find a way to integrate both of those perspectives, 
I think that's probably your best foot forward to connecting with other people on, on a human, like really human and deep level. Um, yeah. And th there, there is there is the human case for fundraising. And then there's also the business case for fundraising. And either two of those, you can go astray if you go too deep in, into either one of them, right? So if you just go way too deep into the business case of fundraising, you're probably not going to do some of the things that are going to have a, a payoff in the long term that you can't necessarily measure in the short term. So Dan, you and I are both direct response marketers. We love to measure things. At the same time, we know that that attribution can be a bit of a mirage sometimes, and and there's lots of errors in attribution, and and the fundraiser's prayer is sort of to be like you know like Lord grant me sort of the wisdom um, to <laughs> to know what I should measure and what I shouldn't measure, and and like knowing what the difference is, right? Um, so I, I don't know if that answers your question, but but I that's sort of the approach that we have. We measure all the things. <clears throat> that we think makes sense. And then a lot of things that some other people might measure, we don't really look at. And we just sort of trust our humanness um, that doing this thing is the right thing in the long term because it's the right thing for the donor. And if we do what is right by the donor, the chances are higher that the donor will, will reciprocate. Yeah, I, I appreciate you sharing that perspective. And, and I, I agree entirely. And um... As Portimer both have a role, and, and the goal ultimately is, um, as as in the name of your your agency, is, is to to do more good, is to build good, to do more good. And um, I think both both sides of the brain have a role in getting there, and everyone kind of has a little bit of a different path. But um, I I I think it isn't it is possible to to be human to care very much about what you're doing, but to still be very strategic and tactical and look at yeah. things that are, that are happening in the, in the commercial world and consumer preferences. And um, sometimes people think that, um, you know, kind of takes a little bit of the, uh, the, the romanticism out of, of philanthropy or, uh, and I don't necessarily agree with that. I think the idea is to be able to do more good and, and tactics and measurements are part of that, not the entire yeah. story, but um, I've really admired how you and and some other uh, influencers who um, who I've gotten to know over the years are able to kind of bridge those two gaps. And it, it's a it's a good thing to think about that you could be passionate and tactical at the same time. And uh, along those lines, we want to get into um, your advice for the industry um, that you've shared with with your clients yeah. for nonprofits. Um, it is a very complicated time right now. I think there's some overlap with some of the advice that we had talked about during the pandemic, but it is very different. This is a, a yeah. slow roll, a lot of slow rolling uh, complications that are going on in the world, whether you're talking about the war in Ukraine, um, inflation, which is affecting everybody around the planet. I mean, it's not just a, uh, it, it, it doesn't matter what level donor or what level contribution you're making, you're, you're noticing five dollar gas um yeah and there probably is a lot of pessimism out there and, and just a lot of a lot of fear and sometimes fear can can paralyze decision makers so mm -hmm. um just start starting out what is your advice right now for fundraisers who who are afraid that don't know what tomorrow is going to bring don't know how yeah. all of these macro events are going to affect their mission you know what's just your starting sure. words of wisdom out for anyone who's have it shares those concerns right now 
Yeah, so the first thing is to start by being very clear-eyed about what's happening. It's going to do you a huge disservice if you don't take stock of exactly what's happening in the world and how your donors might be feeling about that, right? So um, start with the context that your donors are living in. So here's the truth. Um, the truth is that donors are paying a lot more to fill up the family van. They're paying more for chicken and protein and cheese and milk. Um, the housing market, depending on where you live, but it's kind of a mess all over, right? Like it's, it's too inflated. We have news uh, every day you hear, you're now hearing news of big tech companies laying off people. Now, I actually think that has more to do with the fact that tech has been overvalued and they've been, they've been raising VC rounds at, at, at like valuations that were too crazy to begin with. And now they're afraid that they're going to have to take a down round. And so they're laying people off because they don't have the runway and they don't know if they're going to be able to, to raise the cash, right? But when that makes headlines, um, even though we can, we can maybe all agree that Silicon Valley isn't real life because <laughs> it's all like VCs betting, you know, like hyperinflated betting on what the next big thing is going to be. But when that makes headlines on CNN or Fox or NPR, whatever you listen to, that makes you feel like the economy is on the verge of collapsing because you hear about a lot of like places doing mass layoffs. So those are your headlines that your donors are seeing. So for a lot of your donors, there's probably, along with the war in Ukraine, that doesn't seem to have an end in sight. Um, and, and the first and second wave of refugees arriving. So for your donors, there's probably a little bit of a sense of unease, even if they may not be able to articulate it that way. That is the context that they're living in because that is the, the news and that, that they're consuming all day long, right? So you have to understand that. The second thing is we know that a lot of donors are, are elderly people. Um, now, uh, elderly people oftentimes live on a fixed income. Not always. Oftentimes they do. A lot of them probably are set for life. They might have cushy, um, you know, in Canada RSPs, in, in, the, in the US 401ks. Um, they might have, have good retirement accounts. They might have sufficient money. They're, a lot of them might be, might be set, so to speak. They might be good, right? Even so, when you're on a fixed income and prices start to rise and it doesn't seem like there's a, there's a stop to it, and then you look at your portfolio and you're down 8%, and then you hear about how like, oh, we're heading to a recession and you read about all these people being laid off, you start to get really uneasy. Like, am I going to have enough? Because I no longer have the ability to create new wealth and new money. I don't. I just have this, right? Even what I have is a lot of money. <laughs> I still just have this. And so um, you have to realize that a lot of your donors, this might be a little unsettling. They might be feeling a little bit uneasy. Now, younger donors in Canada and the US, a young donor, and we're not talking about a one-time donor. We're talking about a young donor who's, who's starting to engage in philanthropy and like being a monthly donor or like giving more frequently is like 40, 45 plus, right? Now, those people didn't live necessarily through the inflation crisis in the 80s, but their parents did. And they for sure lived through the 08 stock market crash and they've lived through COVID. So they've been through some of these things and they know that it is always better to hang on to your cash a little bit more when times are tight, right? And they're, don't forget, they're also looking at their portfolio and seeing a 5%, 8%, 10% drop. They're also seeing that. Um, so 
start with the fact being really clear eyed here's what's going on in the world here's how a lot of people are feeling um what does business as usual mean and should we even keep doing business as usual or should we get ahead of this thing and and should we try to actually like maybe do something about it because who well, knows people might be holding on to their cash a little bit tighter in the next few months and that's what's so different about inflation is that um it's persistent everyone notices it so it's not you know one of the things that um really informed my perspective in this industry was that i came into it uh 2007 so right before the 2008 financial crisis and that was a terrifying time and one of the things that um i quickly saw is that um people were responding to the need um so in some cases response rates went up during a time yeah. when it seemed like the world was falling apart because even when there's you know eight nine ten percent unemployment the people who still have their jobs who are financially sound they, they continue to give but uh, inflation is just a different animal everyone notices it there's reminders everywhere everyone has seen those signs and in the bagel shop or in the drugstore where we're or your local restaurant you know we have to increase our prices uh due to increased costs uh it, it, it's everywhere and it, it definitely is a psychological effect so on that note i think the first question that that organizations need to tackle is do we address this head-on so i guess yeah. there's two ways to think about it is you certainly don't want to be negative in your fundraising um in your fundraising material, whether it's it's online or, or in print, uh, you don't want to you don't you don't want to set a negative tone. But are you really telling the donor something that they don't already know, or is there uh, trust building that comes along with that, where you acknowledge what they're what we're all experiencing right yeah. now with price increases and and just so much financial uncertainty? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, our strong point of view is that you should be acknowledging it and not acknowledging as in saying, oh, man, things are so bad right now. Um, but first of all, if inflation is affecting your nonprofit and it, it won't affect every nonprofit equally. Um, but generally speaking, we know that th that three things are true or will be true for a lot of nonprofits. And this depends on on what kind of organization you are. But generally speaking, one is costs go up. Not only your donors' costs are going up, or your like your organization's cost may very well go up, right? Especially if if there's um, you know, if you're a shelter that provides a lot of food, or if you're like a university dorm that provides a lot, like you're buying, you're buying food to feed people, whether that's people in need or like students or whatever, like your costs are gonna go up, especially if you if you use a lot of gas, especially like all these different things, your costs are going to go up and your budget is going to have to reflect that. Number two is trust goes down. Um, we're just social animals. It's the way we're built. The moment things get a little bit uneasy, we get a little bit more tribal. Um, we start trusting other people a little bit less. We stop trusting institutions a little bit less. And the Edelman Trust Barometer has certainly done a really great job of measuring that. Um, but it also means that, that, um, in your donor base, people who aren't necessarily very close to your organization, right? They've given you a gift or two, but they're 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 not sort of your core funders. Um, they're they're not they're not part of this base of donors that shows up for you regularly. Um, and they might be giving to a few different organizations. Um, your case for support needs to be a lot stronger now because trust has gone down a little bit, and they're going to be a little bit more picky about where they invest their money. And then three, need goes up. 
and this is often related to costs going up. But um, there many social service organizations are already seeing the effects of inflation, where like food banks are serving more people, just like they did during COVID. All of a sudden, there's a few more people coming to their door. Um, and the, and again, this doesn't apply for every organization, but generally speaking, uh, need in society goes up in times of crisis and in times of sort of um, droning, uh, continuing crisis, crisis, like inflation, you might not consider that a crisis, it's just this annoying thing that gets worse and worse and worse and is persistent, and then it lasts for a long time, and then there's all these domino effects, right? Well, so, if, you're, if you're an organization, if you're a food bank, and your costs have gone up 20% over um, the last year plus, or you're an organization who um, builds housing and your overhead is tied to the cost of raw materials, um, in some ways, I think the situation has made it much smoother for you to to just be blunt with donors yeah. that our costs, not only has our need gone up, but our costs have gone up as well, because um, there's so much awareness of it. We're conditioned to, yeah. to seeing the signs, to understanding that costs have gone up. And everyone is so busy. Um, you know, sometimes I think we overestimate people's ability to just kind of put those dots together, but mm -hmm. you know, people in their busy lives with, with kids and, and, and work and everything that's going on in their own lives, they may not stop to think, Hey, my, my local food bank, their costs have gone up 20% too. But if you point it out and they say, Oh yeah, well, I know this because I'm from yeah. going to the grocery store, then they'll make that connection. But it's probably not safe to assume that donors are inherently aware that, the costs that are impacting them every day may also be yeah. impacting their their favorite nonprofit. Yeah, so so you got to point that out, and and I, I don't think you should be afraid to point that out at all. Um, this is like you said, this is this is a positive thing. Uh, you now have uh, a shared feeling with the donor because the donor for the first time now knows what it means for costs to go up, right? A lot of the things you're talking to them about, they've never felt it. Somebody hasn't been homeless. Maybe they haven't dealt with this thing. Maybe they haven't dealt with that thing. But now when you say our costs have gone up, everybody says, yeah, mine too. And so you have a shared understanding, a shared feeling that they can resonate with. And then number two is you should acknowledge that the costs have gone up for them. You should be like, hey, I know, I know we're all paying more at the, at the you know, to fill up the family van. And, you know, just acknowledge that and then and then still invite them to give and say, and so I understand, like, if right now isn't the right time for you to give, I completely understand. But if you can help and if you want to help, this is the need. Here's why you're needed. Here's a problem. Here's the negative consequences of not fixing the problem. Here's what the proposed solution is. Here's what the cost of that solution is. Right. Is this something that you can help out with? Um, you know, this is an important project. It's an important thing. We want you to be part of this. We consider you an important part of the team. So is there a way for you to help out here? So just be, just be honest about that. Um, so acknowledge both of those, that, that your costs have gone up and that their costs have gone up. I, I thought that your, your point about trust going down, um, that was interesting because that was one of my, that was another takeaway that I had from uh, fundraising during the financial crisis is that people didn't stop giving, but they definitely became more selective about where they spent their money and who they donated their money to. And one of the things that we saw was that um, 
appeals which relied very heavily on branding or just kind of institutional mm-hmm. recognition didn't do as well. But if you made your case about what you were doing and demonstrating impact, you could still um, sustain during that time. Um, how? What is your advice for shoring up trust with donors at this time? Is it about reinforcing the impact of your work? Is it doubling down on donor communications, a little bit of everything. How, how can you start to enforce that trust for when donors start to have to make those difficult decisions about what causes they're going to continue to support? Yeah, so t- two things on, on that point. Number one is, this is the time to really think about your fundraising offer, right? Um, Dan, you and I both get a lot of direct mail because we put ourselves on a lot of lists because we like seeing what comes in, right? So, um, so I categorize it by organization and by appeal and by and by date. Um, there are organizations where I couldn't tell you the difference between the summer appeal of 2022 and the summer of appeal of 2017. They've been running the same offer year after year. They've been running the very close to the same version of the creative. It is an offer that is specific, but is very vague compared to what they do. And they've frankly, their agency or them, whoever it is, has gotten a little bit lazy because this thing has worked so far. So let's just keep sending it out because it works, right? Um, I don't think that that is going to work in the long term. And I actually think that a financial crisis or an uncertain time or COVID or inflation I think overall can be a very positive thing because it puts pressure on organizations to do fundraising in the way they should have been doing it. But they were, they could have, they, they were getting away with doing fundraising that was still working just well enough to get away with, right? And so when there's a contraction, when something like this happens, it puts pressure on organizations. And, and by the way, great organizations they will see uncertainty as a huge opportunity. So um, if you allow me to use an F1 reference here, Ayrton Senna, one of the greatest F1 racers of all time, he said, listen, on a sunny day, it's hard to pass one car in front of me. On a rainy day, I can pass 15, right? Um, Because all of a sudden, rain comes, things are uncertain, people slow down, they're not quite sure anymore. And then you just seize your opportunity. Right. So, um, so so I'll I'll preface with that. Like if you are still sending out like annual, like general vague annual fund appeals, this is my strong point of view. I think annual fund appeals need to need to die. I I think we can be so much more creative. I think we can serve donors with offers that are so much more intriguing that draw them closer to the work that make them feel better about their impact, that increase their commitment to your cause, because it's not just a general vague, support this general vague thing we do, right? Like, please just support us. I think you should be thinking about very specific, clear, tangible offers of stuff that's happening in your shop right now. Like this month, the next month, just see yourself as as drawing the donor in and like getting them as close as possible to the actual work that's happening within your four walls. Be very specific, be very clear. You might think, well, we've got 90 programs. We can't just talk about this one thing in our one program. Yes, you can, because you get another appeal in a few months from now and another appeal a few months later, right? 
Like you got the mic, say one thing at a time. You're in front of a big audience. You were given the mic, say one thing at a time. What do you want them to walk away with? What do you want them to know? What do you want them to know in their heart? What do you want them to feel? What do you want them to do? Just focus on that, right? So this is really the time to, to craft meaningful fundraising offers. And don't be afraid to talk about the things that you think your donor may not care about because you can test those things, right? So uh, we work with an organization that, that works with, with a lot of people who are experiencing homelessness. Every appeal has always been about meals because meals at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? So we started testing some different stuff. Hey, would donors be willing to buy a van that helps the social enterprise deliver laundry across the city that they've cleaned? Huge response. Would donors be interested in funding a mental health project, which is always, uh, we've had some successes and some not successes because mental health, very good response. Would donors be, in, so we, we focus on all these different programs, but all, always only focusing on one program at a time, one specific need, a very clear offer. Here's how much the program costs. It breaks down into this. Here's an offer that is right-sized for each donor, depending on their giving history. And so I think you just have to, think that's how you build trust, right? Is, is be open and honest about those things, but then break it down into very easy to understand, clear, simple, urgent offers. Is that, so how, uh, is, yeah. is part of this also, um, and we, we talk all the time about the importance of multi-channel communication, multi-channel uh, multi fundraising. Um, and I agree that um, a, a crisis like this can, can really position an organization well for the long term with through forced innovation. I mean, there's all kinds of uh, examples of, of wonderful companies that were built during just terrible economic times. So it certainly does happen um, for organizations that are able to, to pivot, um, but not to, not to kind of uh, beat at the steam again, but sure. is this the opportunity where organizations should really be looking at, uh, at, at creating that unsiloed structure between their, their fundraising channels and using, um, if, if direct mail is your primary means of fundraising and, um, and, and using social media and email to kind of provide a, a real-time updates of your work. You know, it's amazing to me how many organizations that do wonderful work and have um, really powerful um, image, uh, pictures that come along with those works, don't utilize them. And yeah. um, there certainly is a way to utilize them in a way that's tasteful and respectful of the donor. Of course, we always want to do that. But is that part of it as well is just kind of creating the sense that your work is ongoing all the time. And yep. there is a lot of, a, lot of, a lot of really important things that are happening. Um, in between those fundraising appeals, um, is this is this the moment to kind of uh, to build your communication strategy in a way that um, complements those uh, those fundraising appeals? Yeah, I, I think you and I are two hundred percent on the same page here, um, which is it, in twenty twenty two, you as the fundraising and communications and marketing department, um, a you should have the same goal. Um, you, you, I don't see how marketing is still out there telling people about how amazing the organization is and then fundraising is out there 
inviting people to solve a need and marketing goes, well, no, no, no. We just told them how amazing we are. You can't tell them we have a need. And fundraising goes, we just told them that we need to raise as much money for the capital campaign. And you're out there telling them that everything is good, right? So um, that, 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 that disconnect is still happening is on leadership. Um, it really is on the CEO and the board and also people in those departments to just advocate for for this sort of, you know, we're all moving, we're all rowing in the same direction here. How come we're on different boats, right? Like, like we should be in tandem here. Now, um, the omni-channel thing, I think in 2022, we can all agree that there are no direct mail donors. There's no email donors. There's no online donors. There's no event donors. There's no you know, there's just people and sometimes what moves them to give is an event and sometimes it's a piece of mail and sometimes it's email and sometimes it's Facebook. But um, this idea that certain donors that we categorize them by channel is not, I, I would argue, is not serving us very well at all. And we should be seeing fundraising as a community building and an audience building operation. Right. That is, if we do that well, that's going to create a ton of future value that sometimes is going to be hard to attribute later. This is, this goes back to the errors of attribution. Um, but you don't do that with four appeals a year. You do that with a lot of effort almost every single day. Yeah. So these things are, 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 are good for organizations. Uh, they're good for donors to, to, build community but i i whether or not you can ever uh have a hundred percent attribution i think we both are on the same page that we fundamentally agree that this is a good thing for organizations yeah. as well and, and their bottom lines and their impact their ability to, to do more and um I, I think this is the time to really look at that because uh, one of the things that i've always learned from you is that um when when somebody considers a, a cause to be you know part of who they are uh, in right uh, part of their identity they're much less likely to leave it or to stop giving than if it's a transactional relationship and uh, during difficult economic times I think that's the time to take a hard look at your organization and, and say what type of relationship do we have with our donors is is it yeah. something that it feels like a community with a two-way relationship where they feel heard and valued or is it transactional in nature? And again, the, yep. the thing about having these honest conversations is it, it's not too late to turn the page and um, really position your organization well for the long time, the, the long term, if you have um, had issues breaking down those silos in the past. Yeah. Now, it's, it's, um, uh, if somebody's listening to this and, and they say, well, you know, we've got like 20,000 donors. Um, a lot of that is not going to happen one-on-one. -on -one. You know, we can't hire hundreds and hundreds of people to go out and build meaningful one-on-one -on -one relationships. That's true. Um, direct response is still a, a large part of, of all of our toolkit uh, because, you know, for a large percentage of our donors, that's how we communicate with them. And then there's a smaller percentage of our donors where we really should be drawing them closer in because of um, their interest, who they are, and their ability to give. Right. So um, those folks, you know, absolutely get as close as you can to the people that you're able to have a personal relationship with. Try to make that work for as many people as possible. For the rest, put a lot of love 
and care and thought into your donor communications. You are not this media machine that is just tasked with putting stuff out for the sake of putting it out and you're building an engine. If you do it enough time, you're going to squeeze enough value out of it. Your uh, community and audience building team, right? So, and, and you're going to try to pull, pull humans closer into the work. So that will require a lot of thought and care and love. And one of the things that you could do during this time is you could, and not a lot of people are going to show up to this, but you could have quarterly Zoom calls um, where everybody's invited. You can make it monthly Zoom calls if you wanted to, where donors can feel like you're giving them an update. You should be very honest about your financials, your program, what's happening, um, good news stories. You should be continually soliciting stories from your staff. That should just be a cultural thing that, that you have ingrained in your organization. And one of the benefits is that you're going to get to record those Zoom calls and repurpose them into a lot of different content. So people are going to start to see that you're the organization that is very accessible, even for the quote unquote mass donor, because they can show up to a Zoom call every quarter or once a month or whatever it is, and they can ask their questions. One of the things I love about that is um, I feel that sometimes the perception of responsiveness and community can be as powerful as the one-to-one -one relationship. So that's why I love the idea of inviting donors at all levels into a Zoom call. Uh, even if only 15 or 20 show up, you don't know how many people value the fact that you're making that outreach, even if they can't take time themselves to do that. Um, the example that I always cite is for any fundraiser or any nonprofit leader to, to go to your social media pages and see what percentage of your comments do you respond to? Um, look at your messages. How long does it take you to respond to your messages if you respond to them? Um, and in some cases for very small organization, my answer is you should be responding to, to every comment in the beginning. That becomes yeah. impractical at a certain point. But if you look at an organization that even responds to 25, 15, 10%, pick a number of the comments, um, versus one where it's entirely a one-way conversation, just the whole feel of the conversation is very different. And people see that and they say, oh, this is an organization which cares what I think. So I think sometimes we get caught up on the literal nature of a one-to-one -one relationship. But if you broadcast it in a way where donors can see that you truly care about feedback, that you're um, that you open avenues for conversations, I think those are the kinds of things that build trust and community and, and loyalty over the long, long term. Yeah. And, and some donors will not want the one-on-one. -on -one. Um, so as, as you're making your way down and you're trying to build really one-on-one, -on -one, some donors may not want it. Some donors want to get the mail. They want to see your stuff on Facebook. They're kind of lurking. They might not be engaging much, right? So you might feel like, again, this goes back to, to attribution. What is the value of somebody um, sharing that Zoom call that you're going to post on YouTube later in a Slack channel with somebody? What is the value of them emailing that to, to their spouse and saying, hey, have you seen what, what this org is doing? We should talk about this tonight. You know, um, It's pretty cool. Uh, what is the value of somebody leaving a gift in your will um, that has never raised their hand and said, I want to leave a gift in my will? They've been making their donations quietly, which happens for a lot of legacy giving. right? Um, so probably the biggest thing that I think that we should we should have all been doing all along, but something like COVID or an inflation just drives it home, is that we've got to be showing up for the people who show up for our nonprofit, 
right? Um, we've really got to treat them like they're an important part of the team and have that mindset. So if I think that a donor is an important part of the team, if something happens at the nonprofit that I think would be important for my staff to know, I will also think to myself, should this be a really quick donor update via email? Um, is this worthy of like a quick email from the CEO? And we work with some CEOs who do this. And every now and again, you get an email saying, hey, Mike, something really cool just happened here. Wanted to share it with you because you're an important part of this. Quick story signed by the CEO, plain text email, huge. And what we, what we measure in that case is how many people reply to it. We don't look at open rate. We don't really look at any of that. We just look at how many people reply to the CEO. And when you start doing like ad hoc sort of updates that are unexpected, that are surprising, that are delighting, that sometimes talk to something that is happening in the context of the donor's life, right? Um, so we had a lot of flooding where, where I am. We, you know, this spring we had a lot of flooding. An email comes just saying, hey, I just watched the news saw what's happening in, in your neck of the woods. Um, I hope you're okay. Can we pray for you? Is there any way that we can, we can help out? Just let me know, right? Like the amount of people who just replied saying, thank you for like noticing and just thinking of me. That's huge, right? Um, now, what's the value of that? You can't take that to the bank, um, but you, you probably will at some point. Uh, <laughs> you may not know that that, was, that that was one of the many things that contributed to a legacy gift or to a bigger gift or, or to a regular gift, right? A lot of smart fundraisers who I follow have uh, started talking about the term lurkers that um, for every donor that engages with something that you do on social media or an email or some other you know piece of mass communication like like what we're talking about, um, there are 10 or more who notice it, um, who take stock of it, who, who value it, but may not interact and they're just kind of looking and, and observing and and again, getting back to the idea of attribution, uh, hard to put uh, dollars and cents on that, but we know over the long term, if you're making positive, uh, impactful impressions with people, that that is going to have a positive impact for fundraising. And I, I love the idea of, of being contextual. Um, this is a, a much less serious example than what you're talking about with the flooding, but I have... Um, I think just about every uh, winter storm that we've had here in the Northeast, I've proposed that organizations should be sending an email with a piece of content to their donors that are impacted by the blizzard to keep them busy or for something to read, whether it's sipping yeah. cocoa or something like just to say, hey, we notice what's happening in your part of the world. And, and that is the type of thing that when you really sit down and, and think about it, it, it can be scaled. Um, it's hard as, as a one-off. You know, it may not, it may not, you may not see the value as a one-off, but it's the type of thing that you know can really deepen relationships over time because you're you're seeing people, you're recognizing them, you're saying, hey, we're noticing what's happening in your life, and that's that's a really powerful thing that in some cases is coming from a very unexpected source. But yeah. people generally, I think people generally are surprised and delighted by that type of thing. I, I do want to talk about. Uh, we talked a lot about the 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 issues um, which are going on and and concerns that nonprofit leaders may have, but you also are very proactive in talking about uh, solutions. So what should you do in this moment? Uh, and yeah. the first one at the top of your list is to adjust expectations with leadership and make a plan. It sounds so basic, but isn't it human nature though that when we're concerned, it's very easy to freeze and kind of deal yeah. with the aftermath later on? But 
should fundraisers be having those proactive concerns now with leadership about um, the impact that they think that uh, that 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 circumstances are going to have on their fundraising? Yeah, I, I think you should take this up to to leadership, um, to CEO, the board, and you should have these conversations very soon. And again, be cleared out about the fact here's what's happening. Um, I think there's a high likelihood that we're going to have to rework the budget. And I think the budget might be a, a, a bit more of a moving target this year, quite frankly. Um, now, we are going to be scared and we're going to want to stop fundraising because that's what we did during COVID. But remember, it took us about 30 to 90 days during COVID for us to realize, oh, the money we don't raise today is not money we're going to raise tomorrow. And so we wasted 90 days of waiting for this thing to, 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 to go away. Uh, we waited 90 days because we thought somehow that others were more deserving, right? We didn't take our duty as fundraisers seriously or as leaders of this organization. Because remember, you have a duty to your organization. The world needs your organization. Donors get to choose where they invest their money. It would be arrogant of us to think, I'm not going to fundraise because I think others are more deserving right now because you're making that decision for your donor. Because what if your donor wants to exercise their values? When things feel uncertain and un uneasy, what if they want to exercise their value, who they are, by making a gift to you, even though you may not be directly impacted by organizations that you think are more deserving, right? So you as a fundraiser have, have the responsibility to defend the best interest of the people you serve and the cause you serve and the organization you serve. In your role, that's what you were put there to do. So um, you're going to be tempted to, to pull out of the market, so to speak, and to just like slow down a little bit, see what happens. You might think, oh, our donors are given to Ukraine right now. I don't know that we should be like getting in the middle of that. Um, I just want to encourage you that you should. The money you, know, you don't I, raise today is not money you're going to raise tomorrow. So you're just going to waste a lot of opportunity. You're going to waste a lot of time. And that is being irresponsible with the donors who already invested in you for you to do the work that you're doing today. Yeah, and that's why I, I, I one of an ongoing theme um, that I try to put out there is that fun. I mean, ideally, these decisions should come from the top. That organizations should uh, make sure to invest that they that they can quantify the lifetime value of a donor or donors that come in from various channels or various packages. Um, in some cases, this information is available at the push of a button. In some cases, for smaller organizations, uh, you might need to figure it out on spreadsheets. But mm. for fundraisers, in a lot of cases, the information is there. And I think one of the most powerful things that you can do if you have to go and talk to your CEO or your executive director is to walk in and say, uh, yes, this year we probably will not meet our budget to uh, where every donor, uh, where the cost per donor will be $25. It might be $50 this year. Yeah. But over the course of a year, these donors are worth $100 or $150 or over the course of five years, they're worth $500, whatever those numbers are. Yeah. And one thing about nonprofit leaders is, is sometimes there is kind of that corporate instinct where, uh, you know, we, we need to, we need to cut you know, we'd need to prepare for lean times, but they're also very data-driven. And when you could start the conversation with, yes, we 
the budget may need to be a moving target this year, but it's still a worthwhile investment. I find that converse, that makes the conversation much easier. And, and, and um, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, but it's, that's why I think it's important yeah. for fundraisers to do what they can to empower themselves with the information to support what they're doing. Like you said, to support the best interest of the organization and, yeah. and the donors who, who continue to make investments. Yeah, and you can also calculate the opportunity cost. So if, if leadership says, oh, we're going to cut back on fundraising by this much, we're not going to do this, we're not going to do that. It's not that hard for you to look at historical data and be like, okay, but then we'll be leaving a million dollars on the table because in our worst performing year, that netted a million dollars, the activities that you're suggesting that we cut, right? Um, so sometimes... Uh, sometimes we have to look at the, the negative consequences of inaction because we're going to be, it, it's the easier decision will feel to cut back and, and like, because we're going to save some money, potentially it feels like the mental pain of that money. It, it, it seems too risky to spend that money at this time, but maybe the riskiest thing you can do is to cut that money. You just have to find a way for the brain to understand that it's riskier to save that money and not invest it, right? So if you're if you are rappelling down um, a giant like cliff, right? But you're strapped in and there's a professional who's like helping you go down. That seems very very scary, but it's very low risk, right? You've got the proper safety equipment. These things rarely break. You're fine. On the other hand, you're walking at the side of a mountain. It's a beautiful spring day. It feels like the safest thing in the world to do when really it's a very high risk activity because you're walking on the side of a mount snow covered mountain on a beautiful spring day when snow is melting fast. It doesn't feel risky, but it's super risky because there's a risk of avalanche, right? So the difference between feeling safe and what's risky is, is we have to help leadership understand that sometimes the thing that feels the safest is actually the, the riskiest thing to do. Yeah, and it, it's important um, to give ourselves some credit that this is not uh, just a nonprofit phenomenon. I mean, there are Fortune 500 companies that over the next 12 to 18 months are going to be slicing their marketing budgets when yeah. decades of data shows that's the last thing you should do um, during a recession. And it, it's just that that flight or that fight or flight instinct, right? That this feels safe to cut overhead at this time, but are we cutting in an area where it's going to cost us long-term growth? That certainly is the case with, with marketing when you're talking about um, Fortune 500 companies, and, and that's the case with, with prospecting for nonprofits. The other opportunity cost there that uh, this is a little bit scary because I don't know that it could be quantified other than just talking to an experienced hand is that um, oftentimes there is a lot of groupthink and that fight or flight kind of takes over in the yeah. industry and the opportunity that gets created by other organizations pulling out of fundraising, either because of concerns over economic reasons or the war in Ukraine, or um, they just decide to cut back on, on prospecting is there's just less competition out there for uh, the organizations that do remain out there. So that means that the donors who continue to give are seeing less offers and that in itself can create an opportunity. And that was definitely one of the biggest takeaways that I learned uh, coming into yeah. the industry during the financial crisis is that the organizations that stayed the course are the ones that came through it the strongest because 
they caught the upswing. Even if there was that period of time where everyone took a little bit of a hit, eventually there's that upswing because uh, so much of the sector pulls back and pulls out that the organizations yeah. that are still in there suddenly have a competitive advantage because they're not uh, competing with as many organizations for attention and, and for dollars. Yeah, and, and what does it signal to donors when you pull back? Um, and what does it signal to staff when you pull back, right? Um, it signals that you're giving up a little bit of leadership. It signals that you're very worried about this thing. It sends a signal that, that you think that you can save your way to success. Right. Um, when a lot of donors in the early days of COVID, we saw donors just like give because they wanted to preserve the causes that were important to them. And then maybe six to eight months in, it almost shifted to where COVID alone wasn't a reason enough anymore for nonprofits to ask for money. Like donors were like, no, now show me some leadership. Right. Like we want leadership from you now. You're one of the institutions that we're choosing to trust because we're giving you money. We want to see leadership from our institutions. We're coming off of a very divisive two to six years where like the internet feels like a drunken barroom fight and every conversation is hyper polarized and, and it feels like you can't say anything online without like, you know, people piling on each other. And people have trusted in, are trusting institutions a lot less um, on, on whatever side of the political aisle you're on. However, whatever your worldview is, however you see things, there are institutions that you feel have let you down in the last two to four years. Right? And so whether you like it or not, sometimes nonprofits get bundled in with institutions. We like to think of ourselves as, as kind of a different organization. But sometimes people lump us in with institutions, even though I'm, I make the case that we're not, but, but sometimes donors do that, right? So um, that's one of the things that, that you're up against. So show some leadership and, and, and again, be, be bold, be honest, be as authentic and, and transparent as possible. I would be sending out appeals with budgets for different program areas and just breaking it down and then turning that into an offer. Um, you can use lift notes for that sort of a thing, but just be very open and transparent with donors and build in public. Like building in public is one of the greatest assets a nonprofit has. The reason a lot of private companies don't build in public is because they're scared about intellectual property. They're scared about competitors stealing their product. They're scared about whatever. You don't have to. You're, you're essentially a public organization in the first place, right? Like most nonprofits are supported um, with grants, some government money, and then a lot of kind and caring people who vote with their money about the kind of world they want to live in by donating to the organizations that build that kind of world. So build in public, do as much of this stuff in public, on social media, on LinkedIn, through your donor comms, through Zoom, whatever it is, do as much of the stuff in public and people are going to be attracted to your leadership because you're stepping up and you're saying, hey, this thing matters a great deal. It is super important. The consequence of us not doing this is too great. So here's what we're doing about it. Here's how you can plug in. Here's how your money gets to work. Here's your impact. If you do that through, through the lean times, I mean, just, just imagine the, the success you might be able to have in, in, in times when everything is, you know, when things are good. A, a couple other um, 
uh, pieces of very practical advice that you give as we prepare to wrap things up. And we appreciate you being so generous with your time, Mike, is um, to talk about plan giving and non-cash yeah. giving and invest in mid-major donors. Now, um, a relatively standard piece of advice during lean times is to focus on your major donors who may continue to be able to support your organization or even step up to, um, uh, to, to cover for other areas where donors may need to cut back. But here, you're you're really talking about um, prospecting and cultivating for other potential major donor relationships. Why do you why do you feel that is something that is so critical to do during um, during times of economic uncertainty uh, when that may seem like a, a counterintuitive thing to do? Sure. So I'm not suggesting that you should give up your your current major donor efforts at all. Um, just know that some of them will be hit very hard with inflation as well, depending on on how they make their money and how they create their wealth or whatever. Right. So um, if you're in real estate, it's going to look very different than if you're in something else. So um, just know that 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 the perceived uneasiness this time affects everybody. So inflation affects everybody almost equally. Right. So just 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 know that. There are donors who may have who may feel like they have less cash to give. Again, they might have lots of savings, they might have lots of investments, they might feel like they don't have as much cash to give. And you should be talking about non-cash giving with those people because there is a way for them to give out of their wealth. There is a way for them to donate stocks and securities and shares and gifts of real property and, and other gifts that oftentimes have a double tax advantage. Um, so disclaimer, um, I'm, uh, I, I mostly speak of a Canadian context, but it, I, I know it applies in the U S as well. I'm not a tax expert. So talk to your legal tax experts, but in a lot of cases, there is a double tax benefit for people, um, to donate out of their wealth for you. It tends to be a bigger gift. It tends to make the donor have less. There is, let's just acknowledge it. There is mental pain when you give away money, whether it's for a charity or not. There is some mental pain involved when money leaves your bank account. There is less mental pain involved when money leaves your bank account from your wealth rather than your cash in the bank. So those gifts tend to be a little bit bigger. They tend to be more transformational. They can tend to be a lot more meaningful for the person. And they often tend to result in more gifts of wealth from that person. If you handle the process correctly and you steward that gift well, then that could be sort of a repeating thing that that that, that person may want to do. That's why that's why it's it's always a good idea to also talk about non-cash gifts, but it's a very good idea now because a lot of people feel like they have less cash. Sure, sure. And while uh, a donor or potential major donor may have taken a big hit in the stock market over the last six months. If they have real estate investments, they could still have a, a considerable amount of wealth that they may be able to use to help support your organization. And it's always good to just, you know, just to have that conversation out there so that yeah. donors know that this is an option as, as a way for them to express their generosity. Um, yeah. Well, Mike, we, we appreciate you sharing uh, so much practical uh, advice and your words of inspiration uh, for the industry uh, during these uncertain times. Are there any um, closing thoughts or, or just a pick me up that um, you may have for fundraisers who are feeling a little stressed right now with so much uncertainty in the world? Yeah. So I think the great news is, and you should take this to heart is don't forget that you are dealing with unusual people. Most people do not give money to charity. So the donors that you're talking to and stewarding and the donors you're showing up for in the world, 
donors you're drawing in closer to the work. They're unusual people. Remember that. They, they like to give. They want to give. Very likely, they like what you're doing. Otherwise, they wouldn't be involved. Even the ones who are critical, you should take that as an invitation um, to answer their questions and to draw them in closer. It means that they care, by the way. Um, the ones who, who just silently go away and never come back, <laughs> those are the ones that don't care, right? So um, just, just be encouraged that you're dealing with unusual people. Know that you are an unusual person as well. So um, just know that. Um, I, th I think that should give you a lot of hope, a lot of courage. And then know that you're in the driver's seat. A lot of these, these decisions, yeah, maybe you're going to have to work with leadership on this. Maybe there's going to be a lot of internal sort of working things out. But know that you're not at the mercy of the market, so to speak. You're not necessarily at the mercy of what's what's happening out there because you get to react and you get to create the conditions even if you are not able to foresee the future most of us aren't aren't able to foresee the future you get to create the kind of conditions that allow you to react to uncertainty and if you just focus on that like if you just focus on hey um let's pretend there will be a giant recession for the next two years how would we go about our work if that happens? If you plan ahead, if you make a plan, if you follow the plan, at the end of the day, you're very likely going to come out ahead of this. Um, because historically speaking, the organizations that have ended up experiencing quite a bit of growth on the back end of that. So um, see this as an opportunity, not a threat. And know that constraints are a good thing because it forces you to be more creative and it forces you to do the things that you probably already should have been doing. Yes, yes. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, donors are extraordinary people and fundraising is extraordinary work. And um, most of us are, are fighting the good fight and that doesn't always uh, make the world easy to contend with, but hopefully it makes it easier and strengthens some resolve that, um, uh, that we're, we're doing good and getting through these difficult times and, and working through them. and. I know your, your advice and your perspective is a big part of it. Um, Mike, uh, would you mind sharing how listeners can get in touch with you or learn more about your podcast or the work that you're doing at Build Good? Yeah, if you know your listeners might be into podcasts since they're listening to a podcast. So um, uh, they can, if they want to, they can find a Build Good fundraising podcast and um, also have a second podcast called the Donor Growth Podcast. So that's an easy way to find me. The best way to connect with me is on LinkedIn. Um, that's where, where Dan and I uh, first connected. So if you just look up Mike Dirksen, D-U-E-R-K-S-E-N on LinkedIn, I try to build in public and I try to share as much as what we're learning on LinkedIn. And I would love to follow you on there and, and see what you're up to. Yes, Mike definitely practices what he preaches. Um, and uh, yeah, I encourage you to, uh, to check out Mike on LinkedIn and, and join the uh, great conversations that we're having on there. And Mike, I just want to thank you again for taking the time to join us today and for all of your great advice and, and wisdom. I know listeners will benefit a great deal from it. And uh, we appreciate you taking the time to join us again. Oh, this was this this was such a pleasure to be on here, Dan. And and I'm just trying to return your favor. You've been on our podcast twice. You've always been so generous with your time and uh, and your advice. So um, so so thank you. Anytime, it's my pleasure, and you're welcome back anytime as well. Take care, Mike. We'll talk to you soon.